0: All right, you should be getting a handout on the way in. Larry's distributing those. This evening at 6 o'clock is the third and final presentation of the Living Last Supper. Uh, There are some seats available for that, but we'd like to know uh, how many because uh, we do have a good number of folks who are coming tonight, so we expect a fairly full house tonight. So if you would register, that would be great. You can do that at the Resource Center or online this afternoon to let us know that you're coming. Let me uh, make sure you know what's happening the next few weeks in this class. Today and next week, Dr. Combs is going to be teaching on a couple of end times subjects that I'll let him explain. And then the two weeks from today is Easter. And on Easter, we do not have the educational hour, just one hour on Easter, 11 o'clock for worship. So no 9.30 service two weeks from today, just 11 o'clock for Easter worship service. Three weeks from today on the 23rd, We'll start a new series in this class on the issue of worry called Anxious for Nothing. But today and next week, Dr. Combs is going to be teaching. So, Dr. Combs, if you'll come.
1: The title of our lesson today is The Bible and the Future. As you can see, if you have your notes, and uh, Dave Allen was asking me about President Trump and his future. (laughs) I'm not dealing with those specific things today. If you, want, if you want to get some specific prophecies like where the stock market will be next year, see me afterward. <laughs> They're $100 for a stock tip, but, you know, <laughs> I take credit card. And, and if you have an Apple phone, Apple Pay, I also uh, do that. So see me afterward for the specifics. So we're going to be uh, teaching on the subject of eschatology, as I mentioned here. And eschatology has to do with last things or future things. Uh, eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. And we find it in John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up in the last day, the eschatos, and the, la- the eschaton. Sometimes we talk about the eschaton, the future, the last day. So we're studying eschatology, the doctrine of last things, future events. I preached a sermon a few weeks ago on 2 Corinthians chapter 5 called Life After Death. That was an eschatological sermon. So anything having to do with the future is eschatological, but specifically, usually when we talk about eschatology, we're talking about events having to do with the second coming of Christ, events surrounding his second coming. And that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Now, our church has a statement of faith, and they have a couple of sections. We have a couple of sections on eschatology. I wanted to look at section 11, which is entitled The Second Coming of Christ. It says, we believe in the second coming of Christ, that his return will be personal, personal, visible, premillennial, and glorious, a blessed hope, The time being unrevealed, yet always imminent. We'll talk about that word next week. That when he comes, he will first remove his church from the earth by resurrection and translation. Then pour out God's righteous judgments on the unbelieving world. Afterward, descend with his church and establish his glorious kingdom over all the nations for a thousand years. At the close of which he will raise the unrighteous dead for their final judgment. So as I say here. This statement is both what's called premillennial and pre-tribulational. So we believe in our statement of faith in the premillennial and the pre-tribulational coming of Christ. Now today we're going to talk about the premillennial aspect of that coming, the premillennial. Next week we'll talk about the pre-tribulational aspect. As I say here, the word premillennial comes from two Latin words, pre, which means before, and mille, which means a thousand. So premillennial means before the thousand, before the thousand-year reign of Christ. Six times in Revelation 20, we're told that Christ is going to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. That thousand years is the millennium. And so we're talking about premillennialism, the idea that Christ will return before pre the millennium. Um, I mentioned here on D, all true Christians believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the second coming is one of the sort of fundamentals of the faith. John fourteen three, Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may uh, that you also may be where I am. So after his death and resurrection of course Jesus ascended back into heaven. We read about that in Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 and Jesus said this. He was uh, said this. He was take After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They that is the disciples were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So all true Christians believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is disagreement among true Christians about the exact sequence of events surrounding the second coming, especially The relationship between Christ's second coming and the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign. What is the relationship between Christ's coming and that millennial reign? Now, in our doctrinal statement, we have a, a, a number of issues that are discussed there. Some are more fundamental than others. That is, in our doctrinal statement, we declare the deity of Jesus Christ the inspiration and authority of scriptures, the virgin birth of Christ, his substitutionary atonement, his second coming. These are fundamental issues that if a person is a genuine Christian, they must believe these issues. There are other issues there that we believe as a church, because we believe the Bible teaches those issues, that some Christians do disagree about. And so there are Christians who disagree with us about our eschatological position, They're not premillennial, but they're still Christians, so you don't have to be a premillennialist to be a true Christian, but if you want to be a right Christian, you've got to be. (laughs) So we have Christian brothers and sisters who are not all premillennial, are not all pre-tribulationalists, we'll see. All right, specifically, E here, there are two issues that are debated among Christians concerning the second coming of Christ and as it relates to the millennial kingdom. First, what is the exact nature of the future millennial kingdom? Is it literal, a literal thousand years or a literal reign of Christ on the earth for some period of time? Or is it some sort of spiritual kingdom? Not a literal kingdom at all, as we'll talk about. And two, what is the temporal, the time relationship between the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom? There are two possibilities that Christians have held. Does Christ come back before the kingdom or after the kingdom? Does Christ come before the millennium or does he come after the millennium? Now, I say there's two positions. There's really three, but as far as when Christ returns in relation to the millennium, either before or after, there's really only two. But the one that believes Christ comes after is divided into two different positions. So let's look at those three views of the millennium. And the second coming. What is the relationship between Christ's coming and this millennium that's talked about specifically in Revelation chapter 20, but throughout the Old Testament as well? First of all, is premillennialism. That's the position of CBC. I say, number one here, as we noted above, the term premillennialism, pre-millennialism literally means before the millennium. That is, Jesus' second coming to earth will take place before the thousand-year reign mentioned in Revelation 20. So in premillennial eschatology, you have these order of events. The second coming, now you can see this beautiful diagram that I drew there. He didn't realize I had that kind of artistic, Pastor Ken didn't realize I had that kind of artistic skill. But, you know. So you see there the cross, then we're in the church age now. Right? Then the second coming of Christ. This is premillennial. So the second coming, then the kingdom after the second coming, and then the eternal state. And I've put a couple of other things in there. Satan is bound before the millennium begins. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 3, as we'll see later. And then Satan's released at the end of the kingdom. There's a rebellion, and then there's the great white throne judgment. And then eternity, we come into eternity. Michael Vlock, uh, uh, a premillennial author, says this, The premillennial kingdom is an intermediate kingdom, since it comes after the present age, but before the eternal state. So God's future kingdom, therefore, has a premillennial phase and then an eternal kingdom phase. So we talk about the kingdom, the premillennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. It's mentioned in Revelation 20, but that's just the intermediate stage. We eventually move to the eternal stage, God's eternal kingdom. So we'll see a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament talk about the eternal, David's going to reign forever, his house will reign forever, and so forth. The thousand years is the beginning of that. So more specifically, the order of events uh, for the second coming in premillennial eschatology, are these, <clears throat> and they're sort of uh, diagrammed on that chart. The second coming of Christ to earth, Revelation 19. We'll look at these passages in a few moments. Satan bound for a thousand years, Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years, Satan is released, rebellion, the great white throne, the eternal state. So I've sort of diagrammed those on page two there for you. Then there is the position called amillennialism. So here's the second position of our second viewpoint of the relationship between the kingdom, the millennium, and the coming of Jesus Christ. Some believers hold to what's called amillennialism. As I say here, the prefix A that begins the word amillennialism says means no in Greek. So amillennialism literally means no millennium. Literally, if we just look at the word, no millennium. That's not exactly correct. It's not an exact uh, perfect description of the position because uh, what amillennialism says no about is that there will be no literal earthly millennium. Uh, It it, it believes there is a, a millennium, but it's a spiritual millennium. So there's no literal reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years following his second coming. But it believes in a... Millennium of sorts. It says the present age in its entirety is understood to be the millennium. So if you look at the diagram that I have drawn there, you can see that I have merged the kingdom and the church together there. The church age equals the kingdom. So in our millennialism, we are in the kingdom now. We are in the millennial kingdom or the kingdom because they are merged together. There is no future literal kingdom on earth with Christ reigning we're in the kingdom now so the thousand years of revelation 20 is not taken literally it's not a literal thousand years but figuratively or spiritually of the entire church age Christ is said to be now reigning spiritually over the church amillennialism believes one that the old testament blessings and promise promises to Israel of a future kingdom apply to the church So when you read in the Old Testament about what God is going to do in the future with Israel, they promised a kingdom, David's going to reign. No, that's, that's, you don't, that's not literally going to happen. That's happening now through the church, not through Israel. Israel has no future. There's no future for the nation of Israel as a national entity. It's just we're talking about the church. Number two, that the church has replaced Israel. That stands to reason. So Israel has no future. Uh, as a national entity. There's no future for national Israel and God's prophetic program. So you can see the chart there shows the church age and the kingdom together. And at the end of this age, whenever that will be sometime in the future, Christ will return his second coming. And then there'll be a general resurrection and judgment. Now, the important thing to note here is that there are, there's only one resurrection here. If you notice back, on page uh, two, I probably should have uh, pointed it out, but uh, in um, in uh, premillennialism, we actually have uh, two resurrections. We have a resurrection when Christ comes. When Christ comes, we're raised up, we receive glorified bodies, we go into the millennial kingdom, and then there's a resurrection of the dead after the kingdom, the great white throne judgment. But notice here, in amillennialism, there, amillennialism, there is only one uh, judgment, one resurrection, I'm sorry, and one judgment called a general resurrection. So the, the saved and the lost are judged at the same time at the great white throne judgment. Now I say here number two, <clears throat> no one doubts that for the first 300 years, the early church held to premillennialism. So This is pretty much agreed upon by amillennialists and postmillennialists. They all agree. Okay, for the first 300 years, the church held a premillennialism. In the 4th century, due to the efforts of Augustine, the church turned away from premillennialism and adopted amillennialism. That is, most of the church, most, most believers as far as we know. Now, Augustine was a very famous early church leader and theologian. Now... We look favorably upon Augustine. He was a man who stood up against the era of his day, against false teaching, Pelagianism, and so forth. And so he's an important theologian in the early church. The reformers who came along 1500, they looked to Augustine, they admired Augustine. But Augustine uh, was responsible, unfortunately, for turning the church away from premillennialism towards this amillennial position. Now he was influenced by a number of factors. I listened, mentioned two factors here: Greek philosophy, Greek philosophy, and popular culture. The philosophy that was very influential uh, was Platonism, or Platonic dualism. So, you know, if we go back to 500 BC to Plato and then Aristotle and so forth, this Platonic philosophy, uh, the philosophy of Plato, endured throughout those centuries. It had a revival around 300 A.D. to 500. So the philosophy of Plato, Greek philosophy, Greek philosophical ideas were very popular. And they certainly had an influence on the church in many ways. Now, in Greek philosophy, Platonic dualism, there's a sharp dichotomy between the body and the soul, the body and the spirit. In Greek thought, the body was thought to be inferior, in fact, sinful, sinful. They had an expression, the body is the prison house of the soul, and the body is the is my problem. The reason I'm a sinner in Greek thought is because of my body. I need to get rid of my body. So th- the, the idea of a bodily existence is something you're trying to rid yourself of. Uh, I say this led to an increasing emphasis on asceticism in the church. Asceticism emphasizes a, a lifestyle of absence from worldly pressures in order to be holy. So they developed an idea in the church that if you really want to be holy, the way to do it is to n- deny yourself worldly pleasures, in fact, be harsh with your body, beat your body, uh, go and live out in a cave somewhere and just live a very Spartan, a miserable kind of lifestyle and you'll be holy. Well, that's not true, we know, but that, that was the kind of influence that was coming into the church. And so... Um, that influenced Augustine. Also, something called allegorical interpretation. In contrast to normal literal, normal or literal interpretation, allegorical interpretation regards the literal sense as a vehicle for a secondary, more spiritual, and more profound sense. So when we interpret the Bible, we interpret the Bible normally. We just take the text as it says and interpret it normally or literally, kind of interpretation. Well, they're developed um, in these days, even before the New Testament period, something called allegorical interpretation. This uh, interpretation was used by the Greek philosophers to try to explain their own literature, their epic poems like the Iliad and the Odyssey. The problem with the Greek mythology is the gods are really no better than the humans. They're just superhumans, but they have the same passions as humans the gods commit all kinds of sins they murder and kill and rape they do all kinds of wicked stuff well to the greek philosophical mind these are problems how do, how are we going to what are we going to say about our great literature uh, that homer wrote what are we going to say about that well we're going to allegorize that we say it doesn't really mean that it means this it's just teaching something different so you spiritualize it you allegorize it uh even jewish people picked up on this uh one philosopher by the name of Philo in Egypt he used that because there were things in the old testament that some Jews found embarrassing that God did and with the greek thought that just didn't comp- it didn't go along with greek thinking so he he used allegoric interpretation and so augustine had available to him this spiritualization idea that a text doesn't actually mean what it really says necessarily so as i say here in number 3 Augustine said that he turned from pre-millennial, premillennialism because he felt the idea of an earthly millennial kingdom with emphasis on material blessings would promote carnality. See, he thought, well, this, this idea of an earthly kingdom and we're going to reign on Christ on the earth, that's rather carnal, that's fleshly, that, that's not spiritual. In amillennialism, Old Testament prophecy of an earthly millennial kingdoms are spiritualized to apply to the church in the present age rather than Israel. For example, Isaiah prophesied during the millennium, The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a child will lead them. Okay. So Isaiah prophesies that. When is that going to happen? It's not happening now. It's not going to be in the eternal state. When is it? Well, it's in the millennium, we know. The curse is going to be partially removed, and so this is the kind of thing we're going to have during the thousand-year reign of Christ. As I say here, John Calvin, who was an amillennialist, uh explained this means that before salvation, people are like savage beasts, but in the church, believers will live in peace with each other. So he spiritualized it to apply to the church in that sense. I say here number four, with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and the identification of the church with the kingdom, premillennial views were suppressed. The Reformation leaders continued to hold to amillennialism, believing that premillennialism had long been rejected by the church. So you have to give the, the reformers here a little bit of a pass maybe, luther calvin zwingli and so forth they had they had a lot they had some big issues on the plate salvation by work they were trying to combat the roman catholic doctrine of salvation by works they were trying to teach justification by faith so their their lives were centered on the doctrine of salvation and the church they weren't thinking they didn't have they weren't thinking a lot about future events so they sort of just kept on with the doctrine that had been around for a thousand years the doctrine of amillennialism they didn't really pursue uh premillennialism i said the irony is that reformers rejected the allegorical inter- allegorical interpretation of scripture upon which it was based so there was a, an irony here in the sense that they were they were they were objecting to allegorical interpretation they believed in historical grammatical the literal meaning but they didn't get around to eschatology as i say they were sort of Absorbed with other important doctrines, the doctrine of salvation. Well, now we come to uh, postmillennialism. Postmillennialism. See here, uh, the Latin (coughs) word post means after. So postmillennialism literally means after the millennium. That is, Jesus' second coming to earth takes place after the millennium. So you can see how I have diagrammed that there. And there's various ways to diagram that. You notice I've got the church age sort of merging with the kingdom. Now, if you read some postmillennialists, they would, have, they would have talked about we'll have the church age and then we'll have a distinct millennium after that. Now, most of the time, they're kind of merged together. The church age brings in the millennium. So as I say here, in postmillennialism, the kingdom comes into being through the Christianism, Christianizing of the world. The kingdom is brought in by the preaching of the gospel. The Great Commission will be completed and the world converted. Now, most of the Puritans held this, people like Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, a more contemporary 20th century theologian, Lorraine Bettner. So post-millennialists were very enamored with social and scientific progress. Um... Bettner has a chapter in the millennium titled, The World is, is Growing Better. The World is Growing Better. And so he has a whole chapter saying how, how the world is getting better and better. As I say here, postmillennialism has much in common with amillennialism. amillennialism. In fact, amillennialism could be thought of as postmillennial since it places the second coming after the present church age. So if you, if you look at that diagram of post-millennial, postmillennialism, the second coming is after the kingdom, just like in millennialism. Both of them are postmillennial in the sense that Christ comes after the millennium. The postmillennialists believe in, in in somewhat of a real millennium. There is going to be a real millennium. The church is going to bring it in through the preaching of the gospel. Everyone's going to be converted and then we'll be in the millennium. Then Christ will come. The amillennialists believe we're in the kingdom now and at some time in the future Christ will come. So they're both Post-millennium in that sense, they believe Christ will come after the millennium. Uh, I say here, post-millennium is optimistic about the future, while amillennialism believes that the conditions will deteriorate until the coming of Christ. As in amillennialism, post-millennialism views the thousand years of the millennium as only symbolic of a long period of time. Postmillennialism originated in the 18th century and was popular in the 19th century. So I said for the first 300 years the church was premillennial universal. Then a millennialism got began very popular. Premillennialism didn't die out, but it was suppressed by the church, and it was the dominant Amillennialism was dominant. Uh, post uh, premillennialism was revived 18 1900s a lot became comes is the most dominant now. Premillennialism is more dominant than these other two today. Most churches, most evangelical churches are premillennial, like ours, but some are amillennial, and there's a tiny bit, tiny, that are postmillennial. But postmillennialism originated in the 18th century and most popular in the 19th century. I say it died out mostly due to historical events. In other words... It was, it was very easy to see, if you lived in the 1900s, things looked like they were getting better. If you lived in Britain, the, the Victorian age, Britain was prosperous. In America, we were, after the Civil War, we were getting more prosperous. The Industrial Revolution, uh, all kinds of progress there, social progress, uh, political progress. It just seemed like things were getting better economically and so forth. And then all of a sudden, World War One comes, World War II comes, you know. And so it's hard to find a lot of post-millennialists today. And as I say here, numerous passages predict things will be worse before the end of the age. And you've read some of those passages before. It just doesn't line up exactly with post-millennialism. If If you look at like Matthew 24, I mentioned there, 21 through 30, where Jesus is being asked by his disciples, Lord, what's going to happen at the end time, what's and when he's on the Mount of Olives there, they say, tell us what's going to happen. And he says, at the end, there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. <laughs> it doesn't sound like things are getting better and we're going to Christianize the world and we're going to convert the world to the to Christianity, that kind of thing. Paul says, Second uh, uh, Timothy 3, you know, 1 through 5, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, and so on, you know. So the description that we have in the New Testament of the last days are not pleasant. They're not prosperous. They're not optimistic, as the postmillennialists argue. I say a few postmillennialists can be found today. There's a website called PostmillennialismToday.com. You can go there and and see that they talk about postmillennialism and and they mention um, they actually have a website. I looked at their website and they mentioned there is actually four churches in Michigan that believe in post-millennialism for churches. <clears throat> That's not many considered in all the churches of Michigan, but still there are some who hold to this particular doctrine. I say that a more uh, recent times, a form of post-millennialism has arisen that looks to the Christianization of the world through the institution of the Mosaic Law, or at least it stresses that. It believes the world will be converted, but it really stresses the... the uh, the use of the mosaic law the man who sort of started this was a man named Dooney. he published a book in 1973 and he talks in there about the law is our vehicle to sort of christianize we're going to, we're going to dom- we're going to have dominion over the world through kind of pushing the mosaic law enforcing the mosaic law and that means in in civil we're going to push the law in civil uh authority civil governments and so forth so it's called Christian Reconstructionism is one name for it. So these people have been very influential, even though they're small in number. They've been influential in, in education. They believe we're going to by educating people. So they're they're very influential. They're pushing Christian education, especially homeschooling. Nothing wrong with homeschooling, but they're just they just believe that's a way to try to uh, Christianize the world. Uh, political movements. They were in, they were they were behind the Moral Majority. Uh, Jerry Falwell and so forth because they thought that was a good political movement to sort of Christianize the world and so forth. So you do find uh, those people around. Doug Wilson is a pastor. Pastor Ken has mentioned Douglas Wilson a number of times here in sermons. He's a pastor out in Idaho, and uh, he's a post-millennialist. All right, so what are the arguments for pre-millennialism, the position that we hold here? Um. The first is hermeneutics. Herman who? Of course, hermeneutics is a word that means principles of interpretation. So we talk about hermeneutics, we're talking about what principles are we going to use to interpret the Bible? So you can use different principles. Uh, Normal interpretation of prophecy results in premillennialism. In premillennialism, the normal or literal method of interpretation is used for all scripture. Normal interpretation gives to each word the same basic meaning you would have in normal customary usage, whether in writing or speaking. Now, we use this all the time. We, we read our Bibles, we read our newspapers. We use normal interpretation. We don't use any special kind of interpretation. This comes up every time we have a Supreme Court nomination because the question is, how is that Supreme Court justice going to interpret the Constitution? Is he going to use normal literal interpretation or is he going to use something else? Is he just going to suck it out of his thumb and say that's what it means, you know? No. So it's the same principle we're fighting right there in the Supreme Court nomination. Well, that's what we're fighting here. If we use normal or literal interpretation, We're going to come up with premillennialism. Now, we recognize that even under normal interpretation, we have figures of speech like the Lamb of God. We know that's a figure of speech, but expresses a real truth about a real person. Christ is the Lamb of God. He's the the sacrifice for sin. He's not a real lamb. We understand that's a figure of speech. We have figures of speech. We have uh, symbolic language like white in Revelation 4 where... uh, John sees a great multitude of people clothed in white. That stands for purity, for the righteousness of Christ. So when we say we believe in literal interpretation, we're not denying that there are figures of speech, there is symbolic language, but we interpret those normally. Now, I Isaiah number two, amillennialists and postmillennialist agree that if all Old Testament prophecies are interpreted normally, then pre results. So you can say this is really the crux of the issue right here. If you interpret the Old Testament normally and literally as you would expect to, like you would any other place of scripture, you're going to be a pre-millennialist. Well, here's O.T. Alice. O.T. Alice is a very famous millennialist. He's one of the founding faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, a very good school. But most of those, most of the people, the faculty for the most part are all amillennialists. He says this, the Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been fulfilled or as being capable of fulfillment in this present age. You see what he's saying? If you, if you take these prophecies literally, you can't say they're being fulfilled. He believes they're being fulfilled. He thinks the church is Israel. Israel's is the church. Because he's an amillennialist. But he said, if you take them literally, then they can't be fulfilled in the present. They must be something in the future. Here's Floyd Hamilton, another amillennialist. Now, we frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of the earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. Here's uh, Lorraine Bettner, this postmillennialist. He says, it's generally agreed... That if the prophecies are taken literally, they do foretell a restoration of the nation of Israel in the land of Palestine with the Jews having a prominent place in that kingdom and ruling over other nations. But he says, I don't take them literally. (laughs) I spiritualize those prophecies and say they don't really, it doesn't really mean what it says. It's really applying to the church. So there's one Important proof is how are we going to interpret the Old Testament prophecies about a future kingdom and a future for Israel. Secondly, we have prophecies of a future earthly kingdom for Israel. There's many of these. I just put 2 Samuel 7 here. David wants to build a temple. Remember in Jerusalem, Nathan informs David that his son will be the one who builds it. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. <laughs> well, it's, there is no kingdom there now. So it must be future. The angel Gabriel says to Mary later on. He, Jesus, will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, what do Amalimus say about this? It says he will reign over Jacob's descendants. Well, they say that's me and you. We're Jacob's descendants. Well, we're not, obviously, unless we're Jewish here, Jewish people here. But no, but they spiritualize this promise that the angel gives to Mary. Now, it's interesting that they don't do the whole thing. When Gabriel comes and says, you A virgin will give birth to a child. They take that literally. But when Gabriel says, you will have a son who will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, that we don't take that. We don't take it that way. We, we spiritualize that. Two, numerous Old Testament passages point to an intermediate kingdom that is better than the present age, but not perfect like the eternal state. We noted earlier, this premillennial kingdom is an intermediate kingdom since it comes after the present age, but before the eternal state. God's future kingdom therefore has a millennial phase and an eternal phase. So what are some of those things? A there will be universal peace and righteousness. This is what the Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they reign, train for war anymore. So here's a period of universal peace and righteousness. Isaiah 2, this has not happened yet. It's going to happen in the future, in the millennium. But, of course, the Amillennialists say it's now. They're spiritualizing that. The curse on creation will be removed. We've already kind of read this about the wolf will lie down with the lamb and so forth. Remember what Amillennialists say about that. They say that that's peace in the church. Calvin says this, The people of Christ will have no disposition to do injury. They were formerly like lions or leopards, but they will not be like sheep or lambs. So he just says, this is just talking about people in the church. It's not talking about a literal lion and a lamb laying down together. Isaiah 35, the desert and the parched land will, will bloom and so forth. So there are these prophecies, these promises, longevity will characterize people living in the millennium. Never again will be there an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. The one who dies at 100 will be thought to be a mere child. And the one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. So we read here that infants who die in infancy, there will be no infants who die in infancy. And no more old men who die prematurely. Something that's different from this present age. That's not true today. This must be some future age, some future kingdom. Let's look uh, quickly in the time we have at C here. The New Testament speaks of a future kingdom. Numerous passages place the reign of Jesus and believers in the future. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world sometime in the future? Don't you know we will judge angels for 2 Timothy 2.12? If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. So Paul says to the New Testament Christians, there's coming a time we will reign with Christ. That's future. We're not reigning now. The book of Revelation number two explicitly speaks of a future millennial kingdom. The book of Revelation can be divided into two main sections as indicated by John in Revelation one nineteen. He says, "Tells John right therefore what you have seen, what is now presently and what will take place." So if we were trying to divide the book at book up, we would have an introduction, chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. Then secondly, the revelation of Jesus Christ concerning the things which are that's the present John sees the, 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 the messages to the churches, the seven churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, and then the revelation of Jesus Christ concerning the things which take place after these things, after the church age. <clears throat> I'm giving a couple of examples here, Revelation 5 and Revelation 19. In Revelation 5, this is, now John is writing this about AD 90. John is writing this, you know, the church age has already started. We're in 89 John is writing this. He's permitted to see a scene in heaven where four living creatures and the 24 elders sang a new song, saying, you, the Lamb, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So John's looking in heaven right now. And what does the Amalelos say is happening right now? The Aminolus says, people in heaven are reigning. We're reigning with Jesus. But what what does the vision say? You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. doesn't say they are reigning. They will reign on the earth. They're not reigning right now. They're in heaven. (laughs) But they're not reigning right now. Those who have been saved are believers in heaven, positionally related to the kingdom, waiting for the actual establishment of the kingdom when they will reign. I mentioned first Corinthians four eight here only because um there Paul is criticizing the Corinthians using extreme satire, extreme irony. He's really on them. Because the Corinthians think they have arrived. They think they have all the gifts, they think they have everything. We've heard they're satisfied. And he says in total irony and sarcasm here, he says, Already you have all your want. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. Then he tells the truth. How I wish you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. No, you Corinthians aren't reigning. We're not reigning yet. We're not in the kingdom. That's future, Paul is saying. We come finally to Revelation 19 and 20. Revelation 19 and 20 clearly teach... The second coming of Jesus Christ will follow, be followed by the millennial kingdom. And I have an outline there of, uh, of the book of Revelation. And I've given you another diagram there which sort of illustrates these points that I'm mentioning. So we have the second coming of Christ to earth. That's in Revelation chapter 19. We have various events that are mentioned there in Revelation 19. But Revelation 19 basically ends with the battle of Armageddon. Christ comes to earth. Now, we know that in premillennial eschatology we have, as we'll see next week, we have the rapture of the church. We're taken out. Then there's the seven-year tribulation period. And then we return with Christ to the earth, the battle of Armageddon. Christ destroys all his enemies. We go into the kingdom That's chapter 20 on your notes there, if you notice, the millennial kingdom, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. For a 1,000 years, Satan is bound during that kingdom. Then he's released. Then there's a rebellion that's crushed. Then there's the great white throne judgment. There's the second resurrection. So there's two resurrections. There's a resurrection before the millennium, and there's a resurrection of the unsaved after the millennium. And then there is the eternal state. So if we look at Revelation 19 and 20, and I have uh, put that um, kind of some text there so we can just glance at that for a second. So in Revelation 19, we have the second coming of Christ. I say Jesus returns to earth and defeats his enemies at the battle of Armageddon. That's what this is saying. I saw heaven open I saw, I saw heaven, I saw seven heavens open, standing open, and there was a, was a, was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. The armies of heaven were following him. So here's Jesus. He's called the Lord of Lords in verse 16, King of King and Lord of Lords. He comes back. This is the second advent on our diagram. He comes back in Revelation 19, and he destroys his enemies. And then in Revelation chapter 20, we have ...the beginning of the millennium, the millennial kingdom. In chapter 20, verses uh, six times, we have six references to the millennial kingdom. So Christ comes back in Revelation 19. In chapter 20, Satan is bound. I saw an angel come down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss... ...and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan... ...and bound him for a thousand years... He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed him over it to keep him from deceiving the nations until the thousand years were ended. At that time, he must be set free for a short time. So Christ comes back. He he, uh, defeats his enemies. He binds Satan. Now, what does the Amalelos say? Amalelos say that the kingdom, we're in the kingdom now, so Satan is bound right now. This binding of Satan right here before the millennium Remember, we're in the millennium, so they say Satan is bound right now. Now, that's kind of strange because, you know, Paul says uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Uh, John says that we know that the whole world lies in the control of the wicked one. No, Satan is not bound, but all millennialists believe that Satan is bound because Satan is bound here in Revelation 20 right before the millennium starts. He says in verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast nor its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So, Revelation here teaches two resurrections. The first resurrection is before the millennium. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to life, that is the unsaved, until the thousand years were ended. Then they're resurrected at the great white throne. So there's a resurrection before. That's you and I. All will say people are resurrected. We go into the millennial kingdom. Then there's a second resurrection after the millennium, when the unsaved are raised and judged at the great white throne. So there's two resurrections here. Now, amillennialists have a difficult time here because it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Well, amillennialists have a very difficult time because it says, there's a resurrection before the millennium. But we're in the millennium now. So what's this Resurrection. Well, it's a spiritual resurrection. It's because you're in heaven with Christ. It's because you got saved and you're in heaven. That's the, that's the first resurrection. So the first resurrection, they say, is a spiritual resurrection. Now the word resurrection here always means a physical resurrection, but they don't, they don't have any choice here. They have no choice but to say the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection because that's already happened. That's taken place. We're in the millennium. The second resurrection is that general resurrection that takes place after the millennium at the end of the age. Uh, I was listening to a sermon just in closing here by uh, Dr. Thomas Schreiner this past week. And I listened to this sermon because I'd heard it before and it had been called to my attention. In this sermon, Dr. Schreiner, Dr. Schreiner is a well-known New Testament scholar. You may have not heard of his name, but he's written a number of books, a number of commentaries. He teaches at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, but he also preaches some at Clifton Baptist Church. He's preaching through the book of Revelation. He's an amillennialist, preaching through. He's preaching through the book of Revelation. He's an amillennialist until he gets to Revelation chapter 20. When he gets to Revelation 20, he announces to the congregation, I have switched. I have become a pre-millennialist. <laughs> Just like that. And He says, And he says the funny thing about it was just a month ago I was teaching my seminary students amillennialism. I was teaching, you know, the the principles of being an millennialist, because that's what I believe. But when I got here, I just couldn't stand up to the text. The text clearly teaches there will be a resurrection, a thousand years, and another resurrection. And millennialism just can't handle that. And so he said I have switched to premillennialism. All right, I'm sorry I've gone over here. Let's close for today. Next time we'll talk about the tribulation and the church's relationship to that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you for this great truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we'll be faithful while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.